and started teaching other things, saying, well, that's all fine. Faith in Jesus is all fine, but you also need to do these other things. They were from a Jewish background, and the things they were telling them they need to do would be circumcise all the males, um, keep the religious festivals like Passover, keep the food laws, don't eat this and that. All those things, if you do those things, then you could be considered a real true child of God. And Paul says, you know what, that's a form of slavery. Because if you add anything to faith in Jesus in order to be acceptable to God, then you're a slave to that thing that you add. And so I want to free you from that, and so this letter is to free them to the real gospel, which is faith in Jesus will bring us into acceptance with God. Um, so he's been doing that throughout this letter. He's been giving all these logical and biblical arguments to counteract the false teaching. But today, this passage, he, he, he uses a different form of persuasion, which is an appeal from his heart. This is an emotional passage. And so we're going to read that and learn what its lesson is, because it's an appeal to us also today. So let's read Galatians 4. 12 to 20, and then I'll pray. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Lord, here we sit two millennia removed from that setting, and yet this is your living word. The ancient text is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is relevant for us today as we sit here with the lives that we have, with the situations in front of us, you have something to say to us for our encouragement, for our liberation, just as you intended it for those people at that time. And that liberation, we know, comes only through a, an apprehension and embrace of the freedom that you offer to us in Christ. And so, would you now do that again? Would you give, the, give us a glimpse of your glory and the freedom in Jesus? We ask it in his name. Amen. 
One of the last things that Jesus said to his followers after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven was what we call the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Bring the good news about forgiveness of sin through the one who bore your sin on the cross. It's the demonstration, the expression of God's heart for us that he desires for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the Lord. God's heart is for the world that you would know this Savior and enter into life, both his presence in your life now and eternal life. So he leaves with this commission, go and Go and make disciples. Go and make other followers. Go and tell people about, about me. And that's what we call discipleship, that process. Go and make disciples. Go and make other followers. And they'll be in your house. They'll be in your workplace. They'll be on the other side of the world where we're going to be doing this. And that's a wonderful mission to be part of. But, you know, Jesus never said that that would be easy. And not just because of persecution, but also because of heartbreak. Heartbreak that comes from investing your heart and soul into discipling other people only to have them drawn away from Christ. Heartbreak is what Paul was experiencing as he wrote this letter. He had heard that these other people were coming in and drawing people away from the gospel. And so he says, I, I entreat you, literally, I beg you, don't do this. Don't go that way. He says, I'm, I'm in the anguish of childbirth over you. I'm, I'm agonizing over this situation. I wish I could be there. I wish I could be with you right now, but all I can do right now is write a letter and pray. I am perplexed. I said, I, I am confounded. I, I am concerned for you. His emotions spill out. He says, I want to change my tone. Well, you're going to experience that if you invest in other people. If you invest your heart and soul, your life into people because you want their good, especially because you want them to know Christ, you're probably going to experience heartbreak somewhere along the line. Kids will go astray. Uh, people leave the church. Discipleship can be painful, but it is also hopeful. When Jesus gave the church the call to go and make disciples, it was with the certainty that those disciples would be made. And us in this room right now, 2,000 years later, is the proof that they have been made and will be made until the final day. Because he also left with that commission, he left the promise, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My presence with you as you go make disciples is what will make your discipleship hopeful. It's what will make it fruitful. 
and you feel the, both the pain and the hope in Paul's appeal to these Galatians. He's been out there doing it. He's seen fruit. He's seen disciples be made, but he's also seen the other side, the pull away from the truth, the, the, the wonder, are you guys going to make it? Are you the real thing or not? Where there's going to be that, that pain, but there's also that hope. Because Jesus is with us. And so it's with hope that he sends the letter because he believes. I think when you get your mind straight again on the gospel, it's going to make a difference. So it's with hope that we disciple even though there's pain in it. So this, this morning's passage, I think the Lord wants to have us go and make disciples, invest our lives in people with realism about the challenge, but with hope about what God can do with it, what he intends to do with it. So we'll have four lessons from the passage about making disciples. The starting point, here's the first lesson. The starting point for discipleship is modeling the gospel, living it out, knowing it yourself, and living like it's true. This comes from verse 12. He said, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, because I also have become as you are. Now, this is the first exhortation in the letter. The first time Paul tells the churches what he wants them to do. He says, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What does he mean by that? Well, this is Paul drawing their attention to his own example of living out the truth of the gospel when he was with them. I have become as you are means even though I'm a Jew by upbringing, I live like you non-Jews in the sense that I know circumcision, food laws, keeping Passover, stuff like that. None of that is necessary for salvation. I also know this, that it isn't even necessary for your ongoing faithfulness to God because those, those things were given to Israel at a certain time and place for a certain reason that's not universal. There are universal commands, God's moral commands that apply to everybody. There, there is a certain way to live. But I don't confuse moral behavior with the gospel message, is what he's saying. I don't erect unnecessary barriers to belief in Christ by making you think you need to become Jews in order to become Christians. He said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those outside the law, like the Gentile believers in the Galatian churches, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. But I do all that, that I might win those outside the law. He doesn't mean, well, I lived like a pagan. You know, I worshipped your idols like you guys did, just so I could fit in. He's not saying that. He's saying, I was still under the law of Christ. I still obey God. I still pursue holiness. But I don't want to erect any unnecessary barriers to belief in Christ. His appeal is 
become as I am in this way. Don't, don't get circumcised and don't do all those things these other teachers are telling you to do thinking that that's going to make you right with God. It won't. Instead, come back to the gospel that I modeled and that you embraced when we first walked together. Live as if it is faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. And don't live like all of your good works save you. Don't live like becoming a Jew will save you. I don't live that way, Paul says. That's the starting point for how we disciple others. What non-believers need is believers who know the difference between moral behavior and the gospel. Moral behavior is not the gospel. It flows out of the gospel. If you actually love God, you will do what God says, but it isn't the way that you get to, to know God. It isn't the way you, you get accepted by Him. We've got to know the difference between moral behavior and the gospel. Know the difference between what's universally the will of God and what's cultural or what's a matter of preference. So we're to identify with people as much as we can without compromising the gospel or our own holiness. This is sometimes called contextualization. Uh, one author, D.A. Carson, describes the approach this way. He said, in every culture, it is important for the evangelist, church planter, and witnessing Christian to flex as far as possible so that the gospel will not be made to appear unnecessarily alien at the merely cultural level. So, for example, we have missionaries in Thailand, the England family, and what do they do when they're over there? Well, they are trying to live in such a way that the Isan people don't think you need to become an American or Western in order to become a Christian. That's what their situation is. So they're eating the food, they shop at the same places, they, they just do what the locals do, things that, as long as it's not sinful inherently. All cultures have sin in them, but there's things that are not sin. It's just the way they do things. So they do that. They, they wear the same clothes and whatnot. What they're doing is removing unnecessary barriers to believing the gospel. What's it really about? You know, we have to do the same thing in Aurora, in Denver. Uh, we're going to eat with non-Christians. Let's go to the baseball games. Uh, let's, let's help with home projects. Let's, let's get into people's worlds. Let's become as they are in that way. Not joining anybody in sin, but joining them in friendship. Why? So that they can see that Jesus is not just for religious people who meet in a church building. He is relevant for them where they live. We don't want the gospel to seem alien as a, at a cultural level. Jo Jesus modeled this for us, actually. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, the bad people of the day, went into their house, sat down with them, engaged in conversation, shared the food that they offered. Why did he do that? He became like they are so that they could become like he is, worshipers of God. 
Jesus modeled it for us. There's a way that he could be in the world, but not of it. The way he could not compromise his holiness, not change the message, and yet still people felt comfortable around him. He had a platform into their lives. That's what he calls us to do. So that's the first point. The starting point of discipleship is to model the truth of the gospel by the way we live. Here's the second point from Paul's appeal, which is the goal or a goal of discipleship is Christ-like community. That's what it should produce when, when it really takes hold, this gospel. We see it in verses 12 to 15. Paul says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is what it looks like when a person and a community embraces the good news of forgiveness and acceptance in Christ. People who are amazed at God's grace become open-hearted and sacrificial in their love for one another. We could paraphrase what Paul is saying this way. When I was with you, you didn't mistreat me, you didn't despise me, even though I came with a physical disability. Rather, you would have done anything for me. You counted yourself blessed to receive me as a messenger of the good news of salvation. That's what he's saying. See, Paul, Paul speaks of the fact that he had a bodily ailment, and somehow that led to his preaching of the gospel to these people. He doesn't say what it was. They knew what it was, but the details are lost on us. Some speculate maybe it was a problem with his vision, which is why maybe he says, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. But we don't actually know. What we know, though, is that his bodily ailment would normally have been something he would have been despised for. Something they would have scorned, as people often do with someone who has a disability. But they didn't really care about that. He says, you, you received me. His disability was insignificant compared to what he brought to them, which was the gospel itself. They received him as an angel of God, it says, as Christ Jesus. Like God has visited us. They recognize Paul as this messenger of good news from God, the one laying out the way of forgiveness and acceptance. And they were excited about that. They were grateful for that. They received him with enthusiasm, like Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. They saw that, Paul, thank you for coming here. If you've read his first missionary journey, you know that it was through trials. He was getting chased out of this town and the next town and the next. He was stoned, almost left for dead at one point, but he persevered to bring this good news to them, and they were like, thank you. Many of you know that feeling of gratitude to God for somebody who has made a difference in your life, somebody that has helped you know him. Uh, maybe it was the person who first shared the gospel with you. 
and you believed it, and that, that you're forever grateful. Maybe it was on a Sunday morning, on a, on a sermon, maybe it was at a conference and there was a speaker. Somehow God opened your heart and you, you resonated with what you were hearing. And so you're like, you want to go back and you replay that sermon over and over, you know, in your, in your uh, podcasts. Maybe it was a one-on-one with a friend, just somebody who, you and them together, and they just brought a verse, they brought like an encouragement, and it made all the difference in your outlook. That's how the gospel changes us. It makes us grateful people. It, it, it makes us kind of united. I, I'll do anything for you. <laughs> They received Paul as an angel of God. They would have done anything for him. It's this phrase that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. It could be kind of like our phrase today. You know, I'll give my, I would give my right arm to have that. It might have been a phrase like that. But what it means is, I'll do anything for you. Like, I'm so grateful. I'm so, I'm so blessed. This is Christ-like community, a, a community of people who are praising God, who are loving each other with sacrificial love. Here's a couple takeaways from this. One is just the reminder that you don't need to be amazing to bring amazingly good news to people. <laughs> Paul had a disability. He could have been scorned and despised for it. He wasn't this amazing guy to look at. He wasn't in GQ magazine or whatever. He just was like your average guy with problems. <laughs> But he brought good news. You might have a disability. You might have a weakness, something people despise. But you know what? That makes you exactly the kind of person that God loves to use to bring transformation to other people. Because the power of God for salvation is the gospel, not the messenger. We just need to be faithful with the message. And the message is plenty good. I like what Charles Spurgeon said along these lines. He quoted Ecclesiastes 9.4, which says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love a guy who can pull something out of that and say, here, here's what applies to your life. Well, here's his application. He said, a living, loving gospel sermon, however unlearned in manner and uncouth in style, is better than the finest discourse devoid of unction and power. A living dog keeps better watch than a dead lion and is of more service to his master. And so the poorest spiritual preacher is infinitely to be preferred to the exquisite orator who has no wisdom but that of words and no energy but that of sound. I think all preachers and teachers and counselors and Christian witnesses need to fall back on that every once in a while. When you feel like what you just said was like completely worthless, I wish I could do that over. Well, just know that if it was true, <laughs> if it was gospel, at least you're a living dog and not a dead lion. You're in the game. <laughs> you're a spokesperson for good news, and God can use it. I go back to that a lot. You don't need to be amazing. The gospel is amazing all by itself. Here's the other takeaway. The true gospel creates a community that feels like blessedness. 
That's the word Paul uses. He calls it your blessedness. That's an awareness that we've received blessing from God. We've received favor. God has smiled on us. He's counted us as sons and daughters. He's given us a future and a hope. Our sins are forgiven. He, he will be with us always to the end of the age. And then after this age, there's, there's eternity. There's sinlessness. There's resurrection. There's no end to happiness. Like, we are blessed people, and that is not because we deserved it. We did nothing. This was God's doing. But a people that really gets that, there's this joint appreciation for, wow, we've been brought into something amazing. So like, let's say that you've got debts, mortgage, credit card, whatever, and like everybody's got them. And then one day somebody just announces, hey, it's all paid off. Some billionaire comes in and says, everybody in this room, all your debts are paid. <laughs> and I'm putting money in a trust fund for all of you so that you don't have to worry about anything the rest of your life. Like you'd all collectively go, wow, can you believe that? Can you believe what we're in here? <laughs> you have that in Christ. Because... It says in Colossians 2.14 that he canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. Our debts against God because of our sins canceled in Christ. And he says, don't be anxious about your life in Matthew 6. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what, you, what about your body, what you'll put on. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That's a promise. Whatever you actually need, your real needs in this life, whatever you need on the path of faithfulness, I will give it to you, even if it's food and the clothes on your back. If you need it, I will give it to you. That's what we've been brought into through faith in Christ, that kind of peace. And it creates a sense of blessedness. We've been blessed. And so we're just joining with each other in that and, and celebrating it together and seeing what can I do for you? How can I be a vehicle for God's blessing to you? That's what the gospel creates. And you know what? The, the churches of Galatia were experiencing that until somebody came in and changed it. And that's the next learning point. The challenge of discipleship is false gospel influences. False gospel influences. You're not the only one speaking into somebody's life. There are others. Again, verses 15 to 17. What then has become of your blessedness? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. This is where Paul is drawing attention to these other teachers, the ones who are persuading the churches that you have to do more you have to do more than put your trust in Jesus. You've got to do these other things, too, to get God's acceptance. He's saying, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. In other words, they come, they come across as so for you. They're so zealous for you to encounter uh, God 
but the result is slavery, slavery to keeping up your righteousness by doing all these things. They want to shut you out, meaning they, they tell you you're not one of God's people unless you do A, B, C, and D. And we know what those are, and here they are. And then once you do A, B, C, and D, they expect that you will make much of them. That is, they'll be so grateful that they rescued you out of your delusion and showed you the real thing, the real truth, the real solution to life. And you'll be, oh, thank you. Paul had us thinking this, but you, you rescued us from that. You're our hero. That's what was going on in the Galatian churches. The blessedness of their sacrificial love and their gratefulness to God for the gospel was disappearing because false gospels turn friends who tell the truth into enemies. Paul says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? If you've ever been in a position of discipling other people, whether that's a, as a Bible study leader or a discipleship group, group leader or a Christian parent, or if you're just a friend mentoring other people, if you've been in any of those roles, you probably know what Paul's talking about here. You invest in someone. You do the best you can to point them to trust in Christ. But then there's these other influences out there, other people saying, no, here's what you need, here's what really matters, here's the inside track to giving you what you're looking for. And as, as they're saying that and you're discipling them, you watch this person that you care about start to get pulled in a different direction. You find yourselves on opposite sides all of a sudden. You're in opposing camps. Maybe they still retain an appearance of Christianity, but their hearts are elsewhere. Or maybe they abandon the faith altogether, and it breaks your heart. I get updates over the years from the church where we once served in Minnesota. And one of my roles when I was there was I was leading the, the youth ministry. So there was maybe 20 teens, 20, 25 teens in the youth ministry, and I've followed as much as I can, like the trajectory of their life and where that's gone. And there's some great testimonies. You know, like lots of the, the kids have gone to adulthood, they've retained their faith, they're, they're in churches, they're, they're doing what they can to be faithful, including our own kids. But there are other stories where some of those teens, once they got older, they abandoned the church some abandon the faith altogether. Their relationship with their parents is not good. They're not involved in any kind of community that has anything to do with Christ. Those things happen. And they happen because there's an idea that gets in and the heart receives it that there's another way, there's a better way, a more relevant way, a more current way, a way that's not centuries old and stuck in the past. All these ideas, all these words come in saying, you got to get out of there. You got to get out from under that influence. But if that influence, if your influence is the truth, you don't want to get out from under it. <laughs> you want to stay in it, but there's this pull to do something else. And when that pull takes hold, it ruins the Christ-like community 
and it ruins the unity, not to mention the effect on their spiritual destiny. I have to say, I'll be candid with you, this is something that keeps me up at night as a pastor on a lot of, a lot of nights. What keeps me awake is knowing the power of the internet in shaping your worldview and influencing what you believe and where you put your hope. Because the people that influence us most in our day, they aren't physically showing up in our churches like the false teachers in Galatia. They're the YouTube channels that you subscribe to. They're the social media influencers that we follow. They're the news sources and the podcasts that we choose to listen to you, and they have access to you 24-7. And we only have about one hour a week to tell you the truth. And so from a human standpoint, that makes me stay awake at night when I think we can't compete with that. Our one hour versus 24-7. We don't have anywhere near the influence or the polish or the access to your lives. And over the years, I've seen that tractor beam of another gospel draw people away to those who would make much of them, but for no good purpose. And I would despair over that if it wasn't for one thing. One hopeful reality, which is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it only takes one hour or one minute for that gospel to make all the difference. And that's what gives us as pastors hope to keep doing it, you know, regardless of what's happening on the internet. We can't compete with the internet for quantity, but as far as quality goes, there isn't anything better than the gospel anywhere. And we have the privilege of saying it. So I would say this also to you parents, group leaders, mentors, Christian friends. Be faithful with your one minute or your one hour and let God run with that the way he wants to. He can make it make the difference. He uses living dogs, not dead lions. He uses his living word. That leads to our last learning point from the passage, which is that the path of discipleship is painful, but it is also hopeful. We see this in verses 18 to 20. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul is revealing here both his pain and his hope for the Galatian churches. He starts by saying, you know what? I have no problem with other people seeking your good through the true gospel that make much of you for a good purpose, 
for a good purpose. True gospel preaching does make much of us for a good purpose. It elevates us. It dignifies us. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God intends to exalt you, to raise you to glory, to honor you. He does make much of you for a good purpose, to attach you to him who is the author of life. And Paul says, I'm, I'm good with that. If I'm not there and somebody else is doing that, fine. Great, let them go for it. But unfortunately, that's not the kind of people who were influencing the Galatians. Instead, they were leading him astray. And so in Paul's agony over that, he writes the letter and says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That sentence says so much. For one thing, it says that true conversion, true Christianity, is not just something we believe, but someone we become like. It is Christ being formed in us. It, it is us taking on the very character and mindset of Christ himself. What he was like when he walked on the earth is what we're becoming like. And that goes way beyond external actions like going to church, reading some scriptures, giving some money, volunteering to serve, as good as all those things are. But it goes deeper. It's to say with Jesus in John chapter 4, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's a, a God-oriented life. My food, my daily sustenance, the thing that I hunger for is for God to be glorified, to, to do his will on earth, that his will might be accomplished, his will in heaven also on earth. And that's not as simple as what you do. That's what your heart is like. You want to do what God wants. The aim of discipleship is Christ formed in us and nothing less. And when you see that happening, that is so joy-producing. John the Apostle said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But the flip side is also true. There is probably no greater sorrow than to hear that your children or the people that you're trying to lead to Jesus are not walking in the truth. And that's what Paul was feeling. And we see it in this sentence, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, mothers in the room are the only ones who can really appreciate that sentence. The anguish of childbirth. I've had a front row seat to it five times with Mary. So I know what it sounds like and looks like. <laughs> but I don't know what it's like to experience it. But it is something that we can understand from a distance. It means that childbirth is very painful. 
It is a painful process. And here's why I think that Paul chose that metaphor to describe the pain that he feels as he's writing to these people. It's because childbirth is pain that leads to life. It's intense for a while. But on the other side of it is a new life breathing the free air on their own. He says, my pain is like that. It hurts to know that these teachers are robbing you, putting you into slavery. But I believe that even on the other side of that, I believe the reason that when I'm writing this letter and you reading it, I believe that God can make that still, in the end, bear life. Where now you'll know that's not the way, and I'll never be tempted by that again. I'm going to go back to the real thing. There's hope in it. It illustrates the pain and the hope of discipleship. On the one hand, it is painful to invest your heart and soul in somebody as you seek their good. It's often attended by heartbreak. And as long as we live in the world where there's tribulation and sin in our hearts and false gospels, we can expect there's going to be pain as we seek to form Christ in others. But on the other hand, it's pain with hope because God in His great mercy likes to use your efforts to bring about spiritual and eternal life in other people. Nobody knows that better than Jesus. He said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus knows what it's like to go through the intense pain for the purpose of bringing new life. He is the seed that died and, and is buried in the earth, but brought life by bearing our sins for us and giving us his righteousness so that we could live. In your gospel work, in your home, in your discipleship group, in your relationships, it's going to bear that pattern. You're going to labor. You're going to labor to form Christ in somebody, and that's going to be hard in a lot of ways, but there's hope in that. There's hope that God will use it, that there will be new life. How and to whom that life appears is not in our control and not always according to our desire. But we labor in hope that God can save the people that we love and serve. That his arm is not too short to save. And we have promises to cling to. Like this one in Psalm 126, 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, mothers and fathers, friends, teachers, mentors, as you go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's a harvest. 
You may not see it until heaven, but there's a harvest. We have this promise in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're a parent of wayward children, those promises are worth including in your prayers for them. Asking God to bear a harvest of spiritual life. Even if it looks like your planting is not doing anything. A long time ago, J.C. Ryle said in his little book on parenting that the child of many prayers is seldom cast away. I think that's wisdom. We keep praying and we keep sowing. And we don't have to worry about the harvest. God is taking care of that. I want to close in a minute. We're going to learn a new song. I hope it'll be an encouragement to you as you're seeking to influence others for Christ. It has been for me. I happened on it about, I don't know, four or five months ago. And I'm like, I got to hear that every day. It's called Your Labor is Not in Vain. And I just want to end by reading a couple of the verses, and then the worship team is going to lead us in singing the whole thing. But it puts hope back into us, into the process of discipleship. It says this, Your labor is not in vain, though the ground underneath you is cursed and stained. Your planting and reaping are never the same, but your labor is not in vain. The houses you labored to build will finally with laughter and joy be filled. The serpent that hurts and destroys shall be killed, and all that is broken be healed. For I am with you. I am with you. I have called you by name. Your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Pray that you'd impress that on all of us, Lord, and give us hope. Not in the change itself that we look for, but in your promises that you, you welcome us. You have a future and a hope for us. It can't be taken away. And we hope for that to also be the case for those that we love. And we ask for a harvest. Whether we can see it in heaven or now, we ask for it. And we ask it based on your promises that we read. Help us to be hopeful even as we're realistic. And to keep our eyes on the true gospel that Christ died for our sins, and so all will be well. We ask it in his name. Amen.